Rabbi Gaber with uh, Jewish History Soundbites podcast, and we'll talk a little bit about the golden age of Chazonus in the early part of the 20th century, and especially its main player, Yassela Rosenblatt, the most beloved and perhaps the most talented of the great Chazonim, maybe ever, for sure, in the golden age, and a little bit about his life, and perhaps I'll be able to get to touch on a little, a few of the other great chazanim of that time period. Um, the golden age of chazanus is a description of the the um, first half of the twentieth century, and there's quite a few reasons why that was the golden age. Although lately there's been some sort of resurgence um, of chazanus, um, which is why it reminded me of it and. I'll to talk about it a little bit. Um, but the Golden Age um, produced a large amount of chazanim and a lot of large and rich uh, shuls across Europe and in the New York area in the United States and even across the United States at the time were willing to pay pretty much any price um, for the glory and honor and prestige of having their shul being graced by one of the the famous cantors of the age. So Yassela Rosenblatt, who to a certain extent has come to define that era, um, who is not only a fantastic chazan, but also was a great composer. And that that's another an additional reason why he was considered um, one of the greatest is because of his many compositions and not just his actual voice and capabilities um, and many of his classics are sung till today, um, both by Chazanim and by uh, laymen. It's, uh, it's, some of them are quite popular. And he grows up in the Ukraine in a very religious home. His father's a Chazan, and at a young age he moves with his family to Sadiger. And with the encouragement of the Sadiger Rebbe, his father becomes a traveling Chazan through the large cities of Galicia, Lvov, Chernovitz, Krakow, and his son Yasula is as a child already accompanying his father places. And during Yasula's Sheva Brachis, he signs a contract with the Munkach Jewish community, which is not far from the area that he had been living at the time, to become a chazan there. It doesn't last very long. He doesn't like the atmosphere of Munkach. He feels it's too stifling. The, uh, the Jewish community is a bit too conservative. And even though he not only was Orthodox, but remained very Orthodox, very religious, very from uh, for the rest of his life, but he wanted a little bit more of a musical freedom. And he moves on, he gets a position in Preshburg, which he very much loved, and the shul there hired him. Uh, Preshburg also offered him the opportunity to be near Vienna, which was the center of music, the center of European music and culture, <coughs> excuse me, and he got a lot of practice and and lessons and exposure to the to the world of music, to the world of the opera and um, techniques, uh, different styles, more modern styles, and which he incorporated into his chazanas, into his davening, wherever he was. He later was a chazan also in Hamburg, and um, he eventually took up a position in New York. In, and his first position actually was in Harlem, which sounds funny, but Harlem actually in Manhattan had a very large and prestigious Jewish community for quite a bit of time. 
and a shul called Ayhev Tzedek, which eventually relocated to the Manhattan's Upper West Side, which I believe is a shul that still exists today, though I'm not sure how much of a relation it has to the original Ohev Tzedek, which was of Hungarian origin, which was uh, related to where he originated from, and he became one of the highest paid chazanim in the world. He was very famous at this point, and um, he renegotiated his contract with the shul several times. He needed a certain amount of freedom to do his concerts, to go across America, and even went back to Europe on a few tours uh, of, of both Western and Eastern Europe um, at different points in his career. And um, the problem was is that not only did he have a large family, he was married and eventually had eight kids, and he lived a, a bit of a high life, but also he spent his money quicker than he could make it, uh, both on, on, like I said, his lifestyle, but in addition to that, both on... Um, both on um, his charitable acts, he was he had a tremendous heart, and he loved the Jewish people, and he did a large amount of chesed and for sick people and for needy and for different organizations, and he was always looking for the betterment of of Jewish society, both in America and back in Europe and in Eretz Yisrael. He was a Zionist, and he believed in a lot of what the Zionist movement was doing, was building, and he had a tremendous support for that. Roshraga Feivel Mendelovich uh, once proposed to him that they invest together in, in a religious newspaper. In New York at the time, the, the main Jewish newspapers were Yiddish papers put out by Jewish socialists, Bundes, Maskilim, we would call them, and um, the Forverts and other newspapers. There was, that was the Yiddish press, and Roshraga Feivel wanted to combat that with a religious paper, and he found a willing partner in Yasser Rosenblatt, who was wanted to further Yiddishkeit in America as well. And he invested a huge amount of money for the time. I think uh, about either a little more, a little less than around approximately $100,000, which at the time was an enormous amount of money of his own funding as a business investment. And the uh, venture went bankrupt and he lost all his initial investment. And that's just one project, uh, but many, many other projects that failed. He wasn't a great investor. He invested in general in other business propositions that were not necessarily connected to charitable um, um, uh, ventures, and he tended to lose his money there. So he was always short of, of funding, and he always was hounded by debts and debtors, and even at one point was forced to declare bankruptcy. And he declared bankruptcy, but he, being an honest Yashura person, wanted to pay back his debts down to the last penny, despite the fact that he had uh, bankruptcy protection. So he always needed, to, was always looking for better positions as a chazan in different shuls, and he came back to Ayyav Tzedek uh, several times. And in addition to that, he, he, um, uh, he um, went on these tours across America, twice back to Europe. He, when he went to Eastern Europe, to Warsaw, Ludge, uh, places like that, Lublin, Vilna, the crowds literally filled up the streets and, and tried breaking down the doors to the shul to get into him. He was so popular. He was um, literally the most popular chazan at the time. He was pr pretty much the first one to record his own chazanish pieces on a phonograph, the invention of Thomas Edison, and he utilized that new invention to market himself, and, uh, and um, that popularized him even more. Um, 
is so much so that the opera heard of him and they wanted to hire him to sing for the opera. Now he admired the music of the opera and the artistic of the opera and he sometimes would sing opera pieces at Chazanish concerts and, but he did not want to sing for the opera. He said, I'm a, I'm a religious Jew and I'm a Chazan. I'm a Baltfilo. I stand in front of the Amud and I represent the Tzibur, the Mashliach Tzibur. I'm a representative of the Tzibur to Davin Hashem. And someone like that, it's inappropriate to sing for the opera. That was his own decision and he gave up an enormous amount of money. To give you an example of at the time how much money he was making, he was making $10,000 a year at his Chazanah's position in the shul, in addition to the concerts he was doing, brought in another few thousand dollars. And the opera was offering him a run of 17, uh, a full season of 17 uh, appearances. Each appearance, he would receive $1,000. So he would receive $17,000 just from the opera, and he refused it. He turned it down because of his values. That, by the way, made him even more popular amongst, uh, amongst the people when they heard about that. He was offered an acting uh, position in Hollywood for a movie that was to be made um, that would need a Chazen Cantor service by Warner Brothers in the 1920s, and he refused that as well. He said, a Chazen is not an actor. He did agree to go down to Hollywood to record a chaz- piece of Chazanus, but not to act in the movie, just to record it. They would use his voice. And when he was in Hollywood at the time, he actually met the famous Hollywood actor, the, the, the most famous of the Hollywood actor of the silent era of the 1920s, um, Charlie Chaplin, great comedian, great slapstick comedian of that uh, period of time in Hollywood. And the two of them met. And Charlie Chaplin actually allegedly told him, uh, it's hard to know if this actually <laughs> happened, that whenever he feels down, he feels depressed, he listens to, to some of Yasula's music and it lifts his spirits. You know, and interestingly enough, one of Yasula's famous pieces is the classic Shir Hamalis that pretty much everyone sings at their Shabbos table. Um, I'm going to spare you all and I'm not going to sing it, but all of you know what the famous Shir Hamalis is. That's Yasula's tune that everyone sings, so much so that it was even considered being used as the tune to sing to the words of Hatikva, which would have eventually become the State of Israel's national anthem. You know, he was a Zionist, he was connected to the movement, and it was a very popular song, and a very beautiful song, and they were going to use it. So the religious Jews of today can be thankful that, uh, that the, they did not use his uh, Shir Hamalis song for Hatikva, because this enables them to continue to sing it for Shir Hamalis, and it would have caused some of them a bit of a discomfort to have to sing the same uh, tune as what's sung for Hatikva. So that was narrowly avoided. Now, he wanted to settle in Israel eventually. He didn't know if he was ready, but he had an offer, which is initially a financial offer, which is why he came. But once he came to visit Israel, he fell in love with the place. He had an offer to create a documentary about Israel. So he arrives in the summer of 1933. He stays there for several months, and he decides he eventually wants to settle there. He's just going to do another tour of Europe and perhaps South Africa to make some more money, pay off his last debts, and then come back to settle in Israel permanently. He literally was electrified by the, the atmosphere there, by both the old Yerushalayim and by, by the new settlements and the farming and agricultural areas. He got very close with Rav Cook. He would spend Shabbos afternoons with Rav Cook. He would learn with him. He would sing there. He, and, he, and he wanted to stay. 
Um, so he's doing this film in the meantime, and then he's going to head over to Europe. And his last tefillah, public tefillah, was davening in the Churvashul in the old city of Yerushalayim on Shabbos. That was his farewell tefillah before he would come back shortly to settle in Israel, as was his plan. His plan never came to fruition. Um, the next, this was on, on, on Shabbos, and uh, um, on, on the end of that Shabbos, he gives his personal Sefer Torah to Rav Kook. He said, I usually carry it with me, but this is going to be anyways my last tour in Europe. I'm going to be coming back soon, so I'm depositing it with you. Rav Kook puts it in the Churvashul to wait for him. And the next day, on Sunday, which happened to be the funeral, the day of the funeral of Chaim Elazarov, the famous Zionist leader who had been assassinated on Friday, two days earlier, which is a story in itself, which perhaps I'll have the opportunity to talk about at a different time. And um, he, on that day, goes down and does filming for this video, this documentary that he's making and being paid to make about the Jewish life in Eretz Yisrael, both the ancient and the new. So he goes down to Chavrit, the Marzanach Pela, to Keva Rachel, where he sings about Kol Barama Nishma, Rachel Imenu, and he's sitting, he goes down to Yerichai, and he's at the Jordan River and at the Yama Melach, and he is doing all the filming. And he, at the Yama Melach, he started not to feel well. When time he got back to Yerushalayim, he was really breathing heavily, not feeling well. His wife calls a doctor, and the doctor checks him out, and in the course of the examination, the doctor asks him, well, how old are you? And he says, in one of his most famous classic songs at the time was Rachem No. At every concert that he would make, people would demand that he sings Rachem No. And he says, don't you know, Dr. Rachem No? And No is Gematria 51, Nun Aleph, and I'm 51 years old. And the doctor said, uh, it doesn't seem like he's doing well. You need to have him rest. You need to give him liquids. You need to do this. You need to do that. And the doctor leaves. A couple hours later, he was dead. It was quite sudden. He had been so full of life. He had sung that day, um, and his wife was in shock. Um, they made a leviah for him the next day in Yerushalayim. Rav Cook was maspid. He's buried on Har Hazesim. He never got to uh, finish his tours, and he actually did never leave Eretz Yisrael, where, which was sort of his dream. And he eventually not only lived there, but died there and got buried there on his, in his kevers on Har Hazesim. Interestingly enough, um, one of the most uh, other famous chazanim of that time, who continued many years uh, past that, was a chazan by the name of Moshe Kaysavitsky. And, um, and later, shortly afterwards, they asked him if he's the second Yasala. And he says, no, I'm Yasala the third. And he says, why? They asked him, why are you the third? And he says, because there's no one second to Yasala. I could be maybe the third. And Moshe Kosovitsky himself had grown up in the Litvisha town of Smargon and became a chazan at quite a young age in Vilna, in the choral synagogue in Vilna, which today, when I bring groups to Vilna, to Lithuania, it's actually the, um, the only, the last shul, the only shul that still exists in Vilna. It was more of a progressive shul. And today it's the only shul. It's the minion three times a day. And it sits in the heart of the old Jewish quarter of Vilna. Big, beautiful shul. It's a central part of any visit I do with the groups, and Moshe Kasavitsky was a chazan there. He's upgraded shortly to um, the great synagogue of Vilna, which unfortunately doesn't exist. There's archaeological work being done in the area, and they've discovered the mikveh in the basement of the area, which was the shul, very famous shul, the Beis Knesset HaGadol of Vilna. has a lot of famous stories attached to it, the Chavitz Chaim, the Vilna Gain, even earlier. And um, Moshe Kasavitsky is the chazan 
of the of the um, the great synagogue of Vilna, and then he's upgraded to probably the greatest position in Eastern Europe, maybe in all of Europe, maybe in all of the world, the great synagogue of Warsaw, Warsaw being the center of Jewish life of the pre-war era, and Moshe Kosovitsky is the chazan in the great synagogue of Warsaw um, um, in, on Talamechki Street, and that's where he remains until... He had, until the war breaks out, he actually had taken over the previous chazan, Gershon Sirota, who was the chazan in the, in the great synagogue in Talamechki Street. And Gershon Sirota was kind of fired because he, he, the shul felt that he was taking too much time off to do concerts across Europe. So he leaves. He stays in Warsaw, ironically, and becomes the chazan of another major shul in Warsaw. The Neuzhik Synagogue. The Neuzhik was a drop more to the right of the Great Synagogue in Warsaw. It wasn't exactly a Heimish Shtibel, but it was a firmer shul. And today, the Neuzhik Shul is the only and last and the only remaining shul in Warsaw. A big, beautiful shul, a central part of any visit I do with groups to Warsaw. It's a, it's a beautiful shul. It's the, the only place that you can really tell the story of Jewish pre-war Warsaw. Um, it's an active shul, three minyanim a day mostly of tourists, but of the few Jews who are still left in Warsaw also. And it's uh, definitely a major stop on all our visits to Poland, um, the Neuzhik Shul. So Moshe Kosovitsky, excuse me, I'm sorry, Gershon Sorota becomes a chazan there for a period of time. Gershon Sorota, by the way, stays in Warsaw through the Warsaw Ghetto and is a chazan in the Warsaw Ghetto, in an underground shul, in a courtyard in Warsaw. And the, the stirring davening that he davened of the Yamim Neroim, the Roshaniyam Kippur of 1942, is remembered by the few survivors and people who recorded it. They said the songs that he sang then were different than the songs that he had ever sung before. And Gershon Sarot, unfortunately, was killed together with his wife during the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. But back to Moshe Kosovitsky, he escapes at the beginning of the war from Warsaw into the Soviet Union, survives the war in the Soviet Union, and comes back to Warsaw at the end of the, after the war. Now imagine, he didn't live through the Warsaw Ghetto. He left, he was the chazan of the great synagogue on Telemetschke Street. The, the great synagogue on Telemetschke Street was blown up in a symbolic destruction. They planted dynamite there, the Nazis, and General Jürgen Stroop, the SS general who crushed the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. He wanted to symbolically show the end of the Warsaw Jewish community. And at the end of the Warsaw uprising, he blew up the great synagogue of Warsaw on Telemetschke Street and said and wrote in the caption of that picture, the Warsaw Jewish Quarter is no more. So this whole Warsaw goes up in flames. There's no one left. There's nothing left. And Moshe Kosovitsky, who had stood at the top of Warsaw society, comes back and sees the devastation, sees the destruction. And in a very moving ceremony, when Rav Herzog, the chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael, Rav Yitzchak Herzog, was visiting the Sheiris Saplate to the survivors in Poland, he was one of the only ones who had actually come down to Poland to visit. There were other big rabbis and Jewish leaders who went to Germany to displaced persons camps following the war to visit survivors. But Herzog went not only there, but he also went to Poland. And he tried to give them chizik to the broken survivors who were trying to piece together their lives at that time. And, um, and they're in the ceremony that for Rav Herzog and in his honor, Moshe Kosovitsky, who had just returned from the Soviet Union, sang a kilmole and said Kaddish, Lili Nishmas, all the people who had been killed. And that whole ceremony was filmed. And I saw it, and it's one of the most moving pieces that I ever saw. 
and uh, him singing there, singing mourning over Jewish Warsaw, and this small group of survivors and Rav Herzog there, and there's the great Chazan Moshe Kosovitsky singing and, and saying Kelmole uh, for all those who had passed on from the Warsaw that was no more. And Kosovitsky moves on to America, becomes the Chazan in, in, uh, in Beit El Synagogue in Borough Park, and lives there till the 1960s, I believe, maybe even the, the 70s, I'm not sure. And, um, and he, um, <coughs> excuse me, 1966, he passes away. And he um, is a you know, big chazan in America, not so much so that I uh, spoke to uh, people who grew up davening in the Mir Minyan in Borough Park, which is obviously a much more yeshivish minyan in Borough Park. But on Shabbos Mavarachim, sometimes they would sneak away without their parents knowing, or for sure without their, their Rosh Yeshiva knowing, and they would go to the more modern shul to go hear the great Moshe Kosovitsky uh, sing um, right there in Borough Park. So that's a little bit about the Chazanim of that time. This is Yehuda Geber. You can reach me um, at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, or to arrange tours to see some of these great places. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Don't miss an episode of the podcasts. If you enjoy, give a good rating, share it with your friends and family. You can follow, follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.